You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I don't think we see prices below $100 uh, a barrel for any sort of like six month sustained period ever again. Uh, that, that That's just the way the price of energy is going up uh, and then inflation is also bringing everything uh, up. So yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the, the one price I'll run with and then the one overarching statement uh, to kind of run with is, is, you know, if you're looking at investments from a one, two, three, five year perspective, um, that's where I run my model is, hey, can we see sub, sub $100 barrel for, for three months? Sure, but not, not for a six month period. Um, ever again. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Hopefully you're having a great holiday season. It's just after Christmas and the new year is upon us. And in a sector I'm interested in for next year is the oil and gas sector. I take a bullish slant to that. Also, I'm interested in the Canadian oil and gas sector, which I think is set up to possibly do very well over the next couple of years, especially if the oil price continues to move upwards or at least stays where it's at or maybe a little more. And so joining me today is Shabam Garg. He is the CEO of White Tundra Resources and White Tundra Investments. And I learned of Shabam through his YouTube channel. And I was impressed not just with his passion for investing in uh, oil and gas, and in particular Canadian oil and gas stocks, but just the fact that he does multi-hour live Zoom broadcasts. And anybody that can do multi our uh, live broadcast, just talk off the top of his head, share all his research. Uh, so I admired his uh, his focus and his commitment to this sector, reached out to him, asked him to come on the show. So Shabam, welcome to Mining Stock Education for the first time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So let's talk about your role. Uh, you're the CEO of White Tundra Resources and White uh, Tundra Investments. What is that and how did you find yourself in that role? Yeah, you bet. So uh, I guess my background is in petroleum engineering, um, University of Alberta, <clears throat> up in up in Canada, which is Alberta being one of the big uh, oil oil resource and oil production areas. Uh, so just kind of got exposed to the sector through my family. And as I grew up, I, I just decided, hey, oil and energy is a place to be. Oil runs the world. The the GDPs of the uh, any economy is basically tied to their energy consumption. So I went into that. And then while I was doing my studies, I figured, hey, I, I really want to be in the field. I need to know exactly what's happening from the ground level, from what we call the wellhead level, uh, being the oil wells. So I uh, worked all over Western Canada, uh, light oil, heavy oil, gas, worked in private junior companies, worked in some of the majors, um, and and just tried to get as much understanding as I could about not not what just happens in these spreadsheets, because we know that from our from the... Um, academic education, but also what happens in the real world. Where where do these worlds collide? Where are the issues? What what doesn't make sense? What doesn't add up? And what does add up? So um, did that for a bit. And then when I graduated, I decided to launch my own little consulting firm, uh, White Tundra Resources. And uh, once again, worked in the field. This was with a little bit more responsibility because I was running my own company uh, that was liable, that was responsible for entire fields of production. So I used to operate the wells and then do the production optimization and the field engineering for those fields at the same time. Um, really learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes. Uh, there was lots of uh, problems, but you also did did a few cool things where you know production went up and all of a sudden the well was making way more oil or more uh, stable oil. And through that, 
um, just just really enjoyed that. But then when 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 COVID hit, just before COVID, um, I've been investing uh, in oil and gas since 2013. Not not the best run uh, till 2019, but but in 2019 things were shifting on the supply demand side uh, pretty drastically, and uh, went went a little bit more into the investing side. And then when COVID hit, it was like okay, I need to focus on oil and gas uh, investing now because the opportunity is just so great. Uh, so I invested uh, a lot more money at that point, and then in March of 2021, um, left that uh, left the 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 field uh, slash engineering side of things. Went full time into investing. Uh, took a few months off to travel, um, and then and in September of last year, really formalized my investing career, if you will, and went into the small to mid caps and and just began doing deep dives into these companies, really getting to know the C suite, uh, getting to know their operations, going to site and and touring their operations, uh, talking to their engineers, talking to their operators, and then doing a full deep financial analysis into the health of the company. And where they saw things going, uh, the vision of it, and then uh, yeah, like it's been fantastic as uh, as you know in the oil space since 2020, and even since 2021. I mean, 2022 has been a absolutely tremendous year uh, in in the energy space compared to some of the other sectors of the market. And uh, yeah, recently, I think I've been going more into the junior side. We've been doing some private placements. We've been going to some private companies. Uh, there's been a you know very very small amount of money coming in uh, as 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 some of the management teams see some opportunity and uh, we say hey if we can figure out where the diamonds are where the gems are we'll go in at a time where capital is very restricted you know me and my group comes in we uh we 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 participate not just on the financial side but we use our engineering backgrounds to then help the company and figure out what what's the game plan here? How can we best capitalize these assets? And uh, it's just been a great collaboration. So yeah, through that, I've been, I've been on Twitter, I've been on YouTube, uh, sharing as much as I can about the oil industry, not just the financial, but also some engineering videos, some technical videos, trying to get people up to speed uh, because the oil industry is very opaque. Uh, it's very hard to get information, uh, especially on the technical side. So yeah, it's just a great, great little industry and uh, uh, happy to share as much as I can. Shabam, let's let's talk macro oil because you uh, you your uh, technical edge, your information edge, I think comes through in everything your experience you just described there. So if you're looking at a little junior, uh, you're able to analyze it better than myself or ninety nine point nine nine percent of my audience. However, if the oil price goes in the wrong direction, the CEOs of these companies or yourself, we can't control that, right? So right. the first thing I always look at is where is the commodity price going, and as I've been studying this with oil. I hear a lot of oil uh, bulls calling for even up to $200 oil next year. And then I've studied some bearish oil voices too. Uh, what is your take on the bear versus bull thesis debate for, let's say, the next two years? And could you address some of the key arguments of the bears, please? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really, really sort of interesting way to discuss it. But uh, yeah, so so I think throughout the last two years, there, there's a definite bullish case that's obvious. Look, we've had underinvestment in oil and gas uh, capital. Demand continues to go up. Some of the fields from a from a geologic engineering standpoint are declining. Uh, we're seeing issues with new exploration, not, not hitting the right amounts of fields that we need, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the whole game plan in the last few years has been, where is the bear case? What, what is the thing that's going to derail this trade? In 2014, it was shale. 
Shale came out of nowhere. It added huge amounts of supply in a very short uh, period of time. It was it was quite capital intensive, but the banks and the PE firms were willing to support that. So all of a sudden, they 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 overloaded the market and caused this this six to seven year down cycle. Um, so so throughout the last year, the some of the bear cases has been okay. Look, uh, OPEC is just going to open up the taps, and we're going to get this massive supply response. That has been proven to be false uh, because OPEC does not have the extra supply response that they that they said they did or that the market perceived they did. Uh, some of the older fields that Saudi has, that Kuwait has, uh, that Iraq has, have been tapping out. They've been, they've been declining in this terminal decline phase. Uh, some of the other countries in the world that, that contribute less production are still declining at five, six, 7% per year. And it, it adds up in a hundred million barrel per day market. The other bear argument was, hey, scale is just gonna ramp up again. Like why, why can't they do it yet again? And uh, we've been doing a lot of work to show that that some of the shale uh, well productivity has been has been going up every single year, 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And then now it's down. 2022 is the first year that the well productivity has started to come down. Some of the companies are struggling with higher decline rates. Their tier one acreage is getting exhausted. The internal cost inflation and the supply chain issues are creating headwinds. There's a lot of seismic activity in these shale acreages that's that's now getting to the higher magnitudes where people start getting hurt. So the shale, the shale bear thesis is still not fully agreed upon, but the data is coming out. Uh, I try to share as much as I can on that. And then the other big, big sort of bearish overarching narrative has been recession and the Great Depression, right? Like, okay, in a recession, oil demand falls, therefore oil prices fall. And so it's not a good trade. So. Um, Right now where we are, there's a couple of things that are mitigating factors to that. Uh, one, one would be that the world never really fully reopened. So when you're saying recession, you know, usually any historical recession has been from a full oil demand and then you, you take a recession off that. This time around, you take a recession off that, but then you have the world is still reopening. So, so technically the demand is still going higher and that wedge, what the difference between that wedge is, is a point of contention. Uh, the other thing is, we can say recession when oil prices are $120 a barrel, yes, and demand destruction. But when oil prices are $75, $80, $85, the recession doesn't impact oil prices that much, especially not in a undersupplied market. So it's a long, long way of saying there's a lot of factors. We, we can't just use one factor and just run with it. We have to look at the supply demand individually each single country, and then each single product. So, so where is the demand? Is it like, for example, right now, we're missing about a million and a half barrels of jet fuel demand. So, okay, we can have a recession, but we're already 20% below our normal jet fuel consumption. So is the, like, is the downside really there? Or is the upside just going to be slowed because of a recession? And, and that's some of the bare arguments that have been coming out. There are other areas like uh, some individuals are saying that Russia is going to add a bunch of supply. Um, that's that's been shown to be false. Um, some are saying that the demand hasn't come in yet. Um, but if we go back and look at a 50-year chart of of world oil demand, it's it's the cleanest, straightest line you can see. Yeah, there's a 2008 crisis. Yeah, there's the you know some some issues in China. Yeah, there's some issues in the 1970s in terms of Iran and 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 everything else. But if you just aggregate the line. 
it's a one to one and a half percent increase every single year. And uh, one of the interesting points that I make about recessions is that when you have a recession, oil demand doesn't just come back to the pre-recession level. It makes up for that 1% per year uh, growth that they didn't get during that recession. So, um, you know, COVID was a recession. So now, now that we're here in 2023, almost uh, in four days, a lot of people are comparing oil demand to 2019 levels. No, we, we need to be 3 to 5% above 2019 levels. And then you can run a recession, uh, a drawdown off that. And you'll see that even if you run a recession drawdown off that, we're not even there yet. So we still have a catch up to go to that point, um, which means higher demand. And, and we're seeing that some of the demand numbers out of India, um, some of the demand numbers out of Brazil, Mexico, uh, South America in general are looking really good. Vietnam, Singapore um, are, are just looking really, really strong, uh, including some of the oil production countries where their GDPs are growing 7, 8, 10% per year. So the populations of Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, they're growing, uh, especially in a high oil price environment. So um, yeah, lots of factors, lots of bearish cases. But uh, when I look at the risk reward on the bear versus bull, I think the bullish side, there's a lot of factors that that are going to push the price upwards as opposed to downwards, um, especially sustained downwards. I don't think the price can be sustained at a lower level for, for a long period of time. I've heard some oil bulls uh, describe it as all you need to do is look at the supply side and just forget about the demand side because there's been underinvestment uh, in oil exploration and development. Uh, companies, even when they're flowing in cash, they're given that back in the form of share buybacks or dividends. So all you need to do is look at the supply side and you can see we're going to have a bull market. Uh, would you number one? Would you agree with that? And then number two, for the bears that are apparently, I assume, looking at the same data, how do they come to a one hundred and eighty degree different conclusion? Uh, yeah, one of the very uh, interesting comments. So, uh, you know, from a supply side, the data is the data, right? So, so we look at capex and what's happened over the last decade. We are just now getting to the twenty fourteen level of capital investment. Great. There's a few there's a few different ways to look at that, right? So so some of the bears are looking at it and saying, "Oh, we're back to 2014 levels of investment. What happened in 2014? The entire bottom of the market fell through." So so therefore, the bottom of the market is going to fall through. But we got to think about it this way. We've missed 8 years of investment. So just because we're there doesn't mean that we're at the exact same position we were in 2014 because we need to make up for this area under the curve that's being missed from 2014 to 2022. That's the first point. The, the second thing is in 2014 or in 08, we're producing, you know, to those two, two years, about seven to 15% more liquids now than we were back then. So naturally, the CapEx not just has to get to those levels, we need to be higher because we're producing more oil. Oil has a decline rate. One could argue that the decline rate today is much higher on a worldwide production because shale has a 30, 40, 50% decline rate on their, on their legacy production compared to conventional, which has a 6 to 7% decline rate. So if the world decline rate is higher, we need more capex just to keep production flat. And then the third, third sort of thing is the inflation aspect. There's been a ton of inflation in the in the internal oil and gas space 
uh, since 2014. So just because we're at the same capital doesn't mean we're we're it's like a barrel for barrel number because now you're paying 40, 50, 80% more per barrel to keep it flat as opposed to we were in 2014. So uh, these are some of the nuances that, that maybe the bears are not really getting into. They're just saying, they're looking at the graph and saying, oh, we're at this capex, which means there's a problem. But the underlying issues that are there have not been solved from one year of under, or one year of like a decent investment. You need multiple years and you need higher investment uh, for that to get solved. So, so I definitely agree this is a supply-based problem. When you look at the exploration success rates, they have gone from call it, you know, 50, 60% in the 1990s and the 1980s. They were hitting these billion barrel pools. Now the success rates are 10, 12, 15%. And the pools they're hitting are one-tenth the size. So not only are they hitting less success rates, but the pools may not even be commercial because they're 100 kilometers offshore. Do you really want to spend $3 billion building a floating platform for a small pool? So there's a lot of nuance like behind the scenes as to why the supply side is not being solved. Uh, in the meantime, the old, tired, uh, big, big fields of what we call the granddaddy fields of the world are declining. Uh, uh, Gawar field in Saudi Arabia, Bergan field in Kuwait are on their terminal decline. They are suffering from higher water cuts. And these fields just, you you can't restore them. It's It's geology. When you produce half your recoverable reserves, you enter a terminal decline phase. That that just is being shown to uh, to be true for every oil field in the world. It's even to some extent true for the shale reserves, uh, which is kind of bizarre given that it's an unconventional reserve compared to a conventional reserve. So um, those are some of the factors on the supply side that I think is worth digging into. I've said this before, and, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but this cycle is really gonna be an engineers and geologist cycle because they have a different view on the macro side of things from, from that lens, as opposed to just looking at the data and saying, oh, the data says X, Y, Z. Well, look at why the data is showing that and you get to a different conclusion, um, as well as uh, sort of from, from picking the companies that are gonna do really well, you need to have a strong engineering geologic background, um, given that you can't just buy companies that are gonna explore these days. There's There are success stories in that realm, yes, but a lot of the development that's going to be done, a lot of the oil production is going to be from older fields and doing enhanced oil recovery in those fields and trying to produce more oil out of them. So, so that's that's sort of where the supply side uh, argument stays. There's a lot of bears that are saying that the shale production can continue to ramp up. And, and there's, there's a very easy explanation as to why they can't. So we can say, okay, there, there was 800 rigs in 2014. There was... 800 rigs right now. Therefore, oil production should be able to increase in shale by a million barrels per day because they increased with this many rigs, million barrels per day then, they should be able to increase now, right? That's that's the argument the bears are using. But let's let's dive into it and, and go into one of the nuances. In 2014, the shale production was, let's say, you know, throwing a number out there in the Permian, a million barrels per day. You put a 50% decline rate on that there was 500,000 of decline in one year. So if you wanted to grow a million barrels per day, you need to make up the decline plus add a million. So one plus 0.5, 800 rigs was doing that. Now the Permian is producing 5 million barrels per day. 
put a 50% decline on that, we need to make up two and a half million barrels per day of legacy decline before we can grow a million barrels per day. So now we need three and a half million barrels per day of new production to grow by a million. And, and that's really as simple as it gets. When you when you start diving into the actual math behind it, we need way more rigs, we need way more equipment, and we need way more locations. We don't have any of those. So um, that's that's kind of the counter argument to, to the bear shale or the bear's view on shale um, in sort of one one comment is 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 there's nuances behind the data that I think are very important. And what makes the cycle so interesting to me is because you can argue both ways, bear uh, bearish or bullish. But when you really go into the nuances and, and what's happening specifically, it's very hard to see a bear case, um, especially on a sustained level, as I'd mentioned. Like, can we see $60 oil for a week or two or a month? Sure. But unless there's some catastrophic issue, all that does is affect supply more. It creates more demand. It, the wedge between supply and demand just gets bigger and bigger. And at the end of the day, you you we're, we're heading into a European natural gas situation where prices suddenly go up 5x in a matter of six months. Um, not not saying that's going to happen in the oil side, but from a from a uh, idea standpoint, it's going to go up very dramatically and then stay there um, because there is no solution. Governments are, are doing their very best to affect supply and subsidize demand. Not a good, not a good uh, uh, way way to be if you want stability in terms of your pricing and lower pricing. You mentioned the spike in uh, European energy uh, prices, and we've seen what I would term a reversion to common sense or a reversion to what works in terms of how they heat their homes over there, and even going back to coal. Some nations because they need coal to generate the heat uh, throughout the European winter. How do you see the ESG? And the, the politicians' war on hydro, hydrocarbons and the forced transition that they're mandating away from hydrocarbon to renewables and other green technologies. Um, how do you see that affecting demand, if at all? Yeah, so we need all kinds of energy. There's this there's this false assumption that because I'm an oil bull or somebody else is an oil bull that we're anti-wind or anti-solar. No, we want every kind of energy. The issue is... Uh, politicians and a large part of society as well um, believe that the transition is going to happen way faster and and can happen like on a dime um, compared to what the reality is. And, and that's really where the problem lies. Like, yes, wind and solar are eating into uh, power gen demand for oil. However, power gen on oil is only 5%. Like out of the 100 million barrels per day of oil consumption, power gen makes up 5%. So even if we replace the entire world's um, a power generation away from heating oil, away from fuel oils into these, these renewable sources, it would be a 5% reduction. And is that going to happen? Likely not. We, yes, we can have it in the Western world. Yes, Texas is doing a really good job. California is doing a you know, decent job. Um, there, there's some other places in Europe that are claim to be 100% hydropower and whatnot. So yes, it can happen in small pockets, but the overall impact of that is being eaten up by the fact that global oil demand continues to grow from the emerging markets. So India, uh, Nigeria, South America, uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries, there are huge populations in these countries that are moving from bicycles to motorcycles. They're moving from motorcycles to sedans. 
and and they're on this part of the S curve where they are going from zero petroleum consumption to some petroleum consumption. And all of that is just adding up to way more demand than what the renewables um, have been taken off, off the markets. Um, I'll also make a comment on electric vehicles. So, you know, electric vehicles are going to be the big, big thing. We all know we don't have the materials to get there and, and it's not happening on as fast of a pace as we'd expected. But, but there's a secondary problem, which is that the mining for these EV batteries are taking up a lot of diesel and a lot of heavy equipment as they go deeper and deeper. The ore grades are declining. So now we're having to process double the tonnage of copper to get the same amount of uh, uh, actual usable copper out. And then there's a there's a third problem to it, which is that when you sell a million barrel, uh, a million electric vehicles, so you know America we're selling, I don't know the latest numbers, but but let's say two to three million EVs per year. That's a reduction in oil demand growth of about forty thousand barrels per day. So in a country that consumes twenty million barrels every single day, your your yearly EV sales are causing a dent of about forty thousand barrels per day. So it's like it could it, it could happen, and I wouldn't even put it into my model because it's completely irrelevant uh, in terms of the magnitude of what's happening now. If they can mandate that every single vehicle sold has to be an EV and they can somehow produce them, you know, America sells about 25-ish million vehicles per year. Yeah, it could it could become a bigger deal, but we're nowhere close, close to that. So until then, it's just like, okay, this thing is gonna happen. When it gets to some sort of scale that that it needs to be taken into account, it gets put into the macro supply-demand model. But right now there's just just nothing. Um, they don't have the scale to really make a dent. Um, but yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to my first argument. We need every kind of energy. The world is thirsty for energy. Energy is what increases people's quality of life. It's what creates uh, jobs. It's what gets com- a country's GDPs up. And, you know, you can mandate anything you want in the Western world. But when people see pain, when they see their heating bill, when they see the gasoline pump a price, when they see you know what it's costing them to travel across the world, people will will realize that hey, something's gone seriously wrong here. Where we used to be able to afford this, and now we can't. Meanwhile, people in other parts of the world are burning whatever they're burning. You know, coal is at an all time high usage in 2022. People are burning biomass. People are burning wood. Right? It's like it's like the human craves energy. And once society is built around energy, it's very hard to get people off that. Um, and we're seeing that, right? We're already seeing protests in terms of the fuel. Uh, we saw a lot of issues with, with with people not wanting to pay hard prices. So it's all it's all going to become this this thing where how much pain can the consumer take? How much pain is the consumer willing to take in order to reduce their energy consumption? And I think that pain is a lot that that pain threshold is a lot less. Then, then maybe people themselves are are gonna admit to right now, um, because things haven't really hit the fan in North America yet. Uh, in Europe, it has to some extent, and uh, we're gonna see it all play out over over time. Um, and has there yeah. ever been an energy transition where the governments, in this case, the governments of the world, forced the transition upon the populace and the private sector, and where in some cases you go from a 
a dense energy source to a less dense energy source. Like, I don't know of any historical precedent for the transition that they're trying to fit us into. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that has never happened before. We've never gone to a less dense source uh, of electricity or, or energy before. Um, and, and also, uh, oil demand has never fallen, uh, in a sustained fashion before. So, so people can run all the graphs they want that show, oh, look, oil demand has been going up for, for a hundred years. And now all of a sudden it's going to start falling. It's just not going to happen. Like all you got to do is look at coal. What, what coal did was grew in certain parts of the world. Yes. In North America, it's gone down, but on a global basis, th- there has to be a flatlining phase before you go into a drawdown phase. Like it's just unrealistic to expect any sort of energy to have this V-shaped pattern uh, because nothing has ever had that before other than maybe you can argue uh, nuclear because they literally shut down facilities after some of the incidents, you know, for for good or bad. I think I think I don't want to argue, argue that side of the portion, but, but we need all sources of energy and energy does have its inherent risks and... Uh, you just got to decide which risk do you want to take uh, at some point. But but you're absolutely bang on. The the kind of ideas that are being thrown out have never been executed. And the pace at which people are predicting these things are going to happen, they haven't happened. So why do you keep predicting the same exact thing when the past five, six, seven, ten years show that's not how, how things have, have gone, right? So uh, it's... It's easy to get something from a 0.01% penetration to a 5%, like solar in your power generation mix. To get it from 5% to 10% is very difficult. And to get it from 10% to 20% is becoming outright impossible, uh, as some governments are finding out. So, you know, the the whole linear model thing, I think people need to put a little bit more work into, into some of these uh, uh, aspirations, uh, let's say. Yeah, and I don't want to belabor this point anymore, but here in Michigan, where I live, I believe we're 11% renewables. And there was a bill introduced uh, um, by a representative here at the state legislature level to where they want to take us to 100% renewables by 2035. And th- there's there's nothing realistic about that whatsoever. Michigan's one of the cloudiest states in the nation. You're not even going to be able to find enough solar power. You know, people are going to starve. They're not going to be able to heat their houses. There's going to be dramatic... Uh, humanitarian consequences to such uh, energy policy. And, you know, I just kind of more than scratch my head, get a little frustrated with some of these proposals because I know it directly impacts people's life in a negative way. But could you give us your take on the oil price per barrel next year? Do you, you do the modeling, as you said, do you have any models? Um, I know, I know on your, you have a spreadsheet on your website for the companies you invest in. And you have an anticipated share price or a fair value for a certain price per barrel, but average price per barrel in 2023, would you be willing to share that? Yeah, I think I think we're we're gonna go, you know, this this cycle from an oil price perspective, there are other similarities, there are other differences, yes. But from an oil price perspective, this cycle is going to be very similar to the 2000 to 2007 sort of cycle. So what you can see is this sustained increase in price it's not gonna it's not gonna go to 200 and stay there next year you know if you're asking me what what's the average price we end up next year i would say somewhere between 100 and 120 dollars a barrel is a is a relatively uh, call it conservative number with the risk being to the upside and the reason i say that is because if if russian production suddenly drops off uh or if chinese demand 
ends up increasing way faster. Uh, if they end up doing a stimulus to the property market, you could see that that number get pushed upwards. Uh, but I think that's that's sort of the price that I'm running with when I invest in some of these junior companies. When I go into some of these private placements, that's that's a number I'm running with. The world has used up a lot of their band aids and their spare bullets. Uh, let's say in 2022, um, China had to come out of COVID, and it it just so happened that 2022 was the year they completely seized up. Um, the the US SPR is down 218, I think, million barrels per day, uh, or 218 million barrels uh, in terms of their inventory in 2022. There's other parts of the world where inventory keeps coming down. Uh, so so you know once again, I think the nuance. Um, and just to provide a bit of color as to as to how I got here, um, you know, people are saying, well, global crude and product inventory is flat in 2022. Okay, agreed. But what's happened? China has stockpiled a bunch of inventory, mostly in the product side. Are they going to release that to the world like the U.S. did? No, they China's a crude importer. There's no way they're going to, you know, help subsidize the world's oil consumption if they can keep the oil for themselves. So technically, more of the inventory is now stuck. Also, we're, we're drawing gasoline, we're drawing crude, we're drawing diesel, the three things that are most important. What are we building? We're building propanes, butanes, petrochemical feedstock. We're building heavy fuel oils, the low-value products. So when we look at it as a whole, you can say, yes, crude oil and products are flat in 2022. And you can say, we're not undersupplied. Well, we're undersupplied in the things we use, and we're you know oversupplied in these random low-value products. So, wh- where do we really end up here? And I think there's problems brewing underneath the surface when you look at the data from from this more uh, specific lens. And I think we you know that that all brings us to this. Okay, well, if China is going to open, we end up in a hundred to hundred twenty dollar price. And and you look further out the decade. I don't want to be the one saying. This is going to happen five years down the road because nobody knows, but it's going to be this slow, sustained increase as opposed to this jack up. And then it just like sustains there that I don't think that's realistic. Um, and, and, and that's sort of the model I'm counting on. I've made the statement before and, and I think, uh, we'll see if it ends up being correct or not, but, but I don't think we see prices, um, you know, oil prices, let's say WTI, uh, uh I made this statement exactly five months ago. So I might have to, Go back and and renew this statement, uh, but but I don't think we see prices below a hundred dollars uh, a barrel for any sort of like six month sustained period ever again. Uh, that, that that's just the way the price of energy is going up, uh, and then inflation is also bringing everything uh, up. So yeah, that's that's sort of the 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 one price I'll run with, and then the one overarching statement uh, to kind of run with is is. You know, if you're looking at investments from a one, two, three, five-year perspective, that's where I run my model is, hey, can we see sub, sub $100 barrel for, for three months? Sure. But not not for a six-month period um, ever again. And so five five years is your time frame then for this cycle? Like, do you have a peaking out of the cycle calculated or as anticipated at this point? Uh, so this is going to be my my bullish side coming out, but but this cycle is not going to be a cycle. This is going to be a sustained shift upwards. So, so pre-2000, we were in the $10 to $20 range for oil prices. Post-2000, we've been in the, call it $40 to $80 you know, range, if you want to say. 
sub 2022, we will be, or post 2022, we will be in a new range for oil prices. That's call it between 120 and $200 a barrel. And we will stay there with, with the, with the, like when oil prices collapse, they will collapse to 80 to $100 a barrel. And when oil prices spike, they will go to 180 to $250 a barrel. So there's a new regime per se uh, that we will be in. There is going to be ebbs and flows. Oil is a cyclical industry. Obviously, that, that's just how it's going to happen. But but the range itself is going to be shifted. And so people are going to perceive the cycle as like never having ended because we never get to these $60, $70, $80 oil prices. Yeah, for any sustained sustained sort of period. Um, yeah. Shabam, I'm going to have to have you back to talk about the Canadian oil and gas sector because I want to respect your time. But I, I, as you're talking, I just have so many more questions. Like, so, so, for example, some people think that oil is going to be transacted for gold not in US uh-huh. dollars or then there's things in the news about the petro yuan no longer the petrodollar do you right. factor these geopolitical and economic events into your forecast i think they're they're great discussion topics but from what i understand i focus mostly on oil macro and then oil micro on the company so i'm i'm no geopolitical expert by any means but you know this this was mentioned to me somebody had had messaged me one day and said hey the us you know like why are you concerned about the SPR? The U.S. can just use up 3% of their gold reserves and go and refill the SPR 200 million barrels. And I said, like, it makes sense, but we don't we don't have the oil to begin with. Like, you can't just trade something for like this massive volume of oil that doesn't exist. Many of my and listeners don't believe we have the gold either, by the way. We believe that's a lie, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I'll leave that up to the, list- okay. the listeners because I don't I don't really know. It's like eight eight thousand tons or something they were telling supposedly, me. Supposedly, uh, yeah, suppo- yeah. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah, supposedly, yeah. Um, and then the other problem is that is that the US has has spent so much time and effort and money like keeping the petrodollar alive that I don't think they would use their gold and then like like kibosh their own uh interest in keeping the petrodollar as a thing that 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 is priced like all energy is priced in so so i don't think that happens uh by any means i also don't think the petro yuan is is ever going to happen because you need to be an energy producer and an exporter really to keep that alive so the petro ruble petro ruble then maybe yeah you could have a petro ruble yeah possibly in in that certain part of the world uh, where you have maybe maybe China, India, and some of the uh, maybe Japan and Russia are now are now transacting undercover between those things. Yes, it could certainly happen. But but when we say what is the world's oil going to be traded in, I think it's going to be petrodollar for a long, long, long time. Um, you know, amongst the other sort of uh, conspiracies or or this thing around the gold and whatnot is that the U.S. still controls a large part of the Middle East. Maybe not Saudi Arabia, maybe not the UAE, but there's still very, very strong ties to to that oil production part of the world. Um, you know, the U.S. has been has been taking oil from Kurdistan, has been taking oil from Syria and Egypt and whatnot for for a long, long time. So I just think that the U.S. has too much control on the oil oil markets um, to let that go. Uh, you know, really, you don't even need a military. All you need is a control of the energy markets. And you control the world because you can cut off uh, crude imports into China. You can go and block off the Russian crude exports, right? And you can just like like literally get oil stuck in certain places. And uh, 
uh, starve people to death of of energy. So uh, yeah, I don't see I don't see these as as big factors. I think they're fun discussion topics and and they're cool to learn stuff about Russia and the, the historical presidencies and whatnot. But I I don't think these are realistic things um, that are going to happen anytime anytime soon anyway. Um, well, yeah. Should be. Shabam, I want to respect your time. Uh, Rick Rule, uh, who I uh, bring on the show a lot, a very veteran resource investor. He says, you need to understand the macro, but you make money by having an informational edge in the micro when you invest in these little juniors. So you invest in Canadian oil and gas juniors, and I'd like to bring you back on the show for another episode in the near future, hopefully, to where you can share with listeners how you approach uh, investing in Canadian oil and gas. But uh, in the meantime, I appreciate your insights today. I'm going to be listening to this interview a couple times myself to wrap my head around some of the things you said. So uh, thanks for coming on the show and let listeners know where they can find you online too also, please. Yeah, you bet. No, thanks so much. Uh, always love talking oil. Uh, I think so. A lot of my stuff is on Twitter. I, I like to post uh, supply demand relevant uh, information on my Twitter feed. Um, kind of one or you know one post a day. Usually I'll, I'll post some graph. I like, I like the visuals data part of things. You know, you... I, I'll put my opinion or my interpretation of it, and then people have the actual data where they can go and make some other opinion of it. So, so that's that's really where a lot of my stuff is. Uh, I like to participate in a lot of Twitter Spaces, so so we go and have this back and forth discussion uh, Tuesdays and Fridays usually. And then I've been on a on a hiatus for a little bit here, but but every Sunday uh, I do these these Zoom sessions where some are macro focused, some are company specific valuation focused. And more recently, I've been doing a lot of sessions on the engineering side of things, uh, especially with, with, with relation to junior companies and really getting into the nitty gritty as to what's happening with this exact field or with this exact um, you know, company itself. So those are on YouTube. It's all free of charge. There's nothing, uh, uh, no subscriptions or anything. And then my, my website, whitetundra.ca is where, again, all the videos are. My portfolio is fully public as well over there. Uh, and then some of the information as to as some of the articles I've written. So those would be the best. And um, yeah, I think my 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 email is on there as well. If somebody has any uh, specific questions. And your Twitter and YouTube are linked from your website, I believe, too, right? So listeners could yes, find it there as well. And the Twitter uh, is White Tundra SG. Uh, my YouTube, I don't exactly know what the username is, but but if you just search up White Tundra Investments uh, YouTube, uh, there's about now. What is it, about 14 months of content on there. So um, yeah, lots. And I think lots you have one video there. that's like over six hours, if I remember, right? You did like a marathon live presentation for over six hours of all your research. Yes, yes. So so I do these, these macro outlooks every quarter. So the next one will be coming up on January 30th or like around that time. And I go over supply, demand, inventories. I go over EVs, renewables. We look at the overall broad macro. And everything is data. Every slide has a chart. It's not. It's not text. It's not opinion. And I just think, like, hey, if you're gonna be talking about oil and gas, if you want to be a serious investor, you have to know, uh, know the macro. I'd rather put it out there in a in a six hour video than do a three hour video, and then people are left with questions as to, well, what about this or what about that? So, um, you know, I'll I forewarned people on my previous interviews about the October thirtieth macro. Um, I'll put it this way. The January macro, um, might end up being even longer, so, <laughs> but, but it's going to be, it's going to be a full zero to 100 on every single question. People have asked me more questions. It's an iterative process I use. 
So if somebody says, well, you never talked about Brazilian offshore production in your last macro, okay, now we add that slides and then we go on with it. So um, I think I think the January 30th one will be a lot shorter because I will focus specifically on US shale. I really want to go into every single co uh, company there. But uh, yeah, for anybody who's new to oil and gas, you want a, a, a full understanding um, the October 30th macro, yeah, would be would be your best bet. Um, well, Shabam, sure. I predict with the, the career path you're headed on and the trajectory and just how articulate and well-spoken you are, you're eventually going to be on CBC or CNBC. And they only give you five-minute time slots. <laughs> so you're going to have to learn how to condense that eight hours into about five minutes, right? Right, right. Well, I'm I'm going to try to do my best. Yeah, I've had some yeah. interviews where, where they've been a lot shorter. And um, hey, we try to get the point across in, yeah. uh, in that as well. For sure. Well, well, you got your point across today. I really appreciate it. And I'll be bringing Shabam back in the future. And we're going to talk specifically about how to invest in Canadian junior oil and gas stocks. Once again, Shabam, thank you for joining me on today's episode. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.